It is not despair, for despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. Greetings! Welcome back to Watch Party Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. Today is another episode where we talk about the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, Amazon's great adaptation of the Second Age, and we've got some more leaks and spoilery stuff to talk about. So if you're not into spoilers, please click away and come back and join us for uh, another episode. Uh, but if you are into that, we're going to talk about a lot of really fun and interesting things here. And before we go any further, I just want to introduce my wonderful co-host... Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Karini. Oh, and you, thank people, you, Michael. People um, will not know who that is, but you will know by the end of this episode. <laughs> Very shortly, you will know. And I am joined by the wonderful Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Azog, the Oh, orc come shooter. on. <laughs> <laughs> I know, not a fan. It had to come around eventually. Um, it, it well, uh, if you like what we're doing here, please do. Remember to uh, support us, show us, give us a like, show us some love on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, um, wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us out, helps other people to find us, elevates us in the rankings. So we'd really appreciate it if you did that. And please go check out our other Watch Party podcast, Watch Party Wheel of Time, hosted by Rourke and Saima and a whole panel of newbies who have never before read the books, but who are enjoying the show, uh, the Wheel of Time universe for the first time through the show. It's a great show. If you're into fantasy, which you must be because you listen to this pod, you will enjoy that podcast as well. Before we go any further, I have uh, I have a little bit of news. It's been a little while since we, we've recorded a pod. Um, I've got a little bit of news. I've got a new little hobbit in my life. We just gave birth uh, about a week ago, 10 days now. Um, Yay. And uh, thank you. It's <laughs> It's been really, really wonderful. <sighs> and life life is good. I, I strongly encourage anyone to have, who doesn't have children to have children. No need to get married or find a spouse <laughs> or anything. Just go get a child. Just, you know, if you see a child, grab them off the street. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Bonus if you introduce them to Lord of the Rings <laughs> and just grow this fan base. That's really yeah. what we're doing is just creating like a little army of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. We're lovers. trying to encourage you to create new <laughs> fans of this podcast because that'd be like the slowest way to build an audience possible if, <laughs> through procreation. <laughs> but uh no that's uh that that's been what's been going on in my life and um just want to put that out there into the world it has nothing to do with this podcast other than that if you were wondering why it uh, we had maybe three week break between our last couple episodes that is why we actually recorded our episode with uh, Marilyn about the transformation of Marwin like a month ago or like six weeks ago by the time this episode airs um and it was just sort of sitting in my computer unedited for a lot of weeks but i gave myself permission to do that because when you have a baby and you don't sleep that's uh, kind of how it goes precisely um and another spoiler is that i will also be having a baby hobbit <laughs> of my own any second um the due date's june yeah. 1st but i'm right behind i'm right behind michael and this was not planned but no right yeah we we, <laughs> um, we did not like call each other up and be like you got the uh, the red wine and the sexy music going. All right, is tonight the night? All right. <laughs> we just we just happen to be this close together, yeah. but we are committed to the pod. You will have content, and we have exciting things to look forward to in the Watch Party Podcast Network world, as Michael mentioned earlier. So fear not. Um, although we're birthing baby hobbits over here, we're still very much. You're recording and engaging. Yeah, it's very likely that a future podcast will feature uh, background noise 
including but not limited to screaming, crying, uh, banging on the floor. And that'll just be me. That'll just be me, not even the baby. (laughs) (laughs) It's the truth, especially if the show's bad. Yes, the show will not be bad. We don't know yet. It could be, could be awful, could be great, could be somewhere in the middle. Um, We're going to have fun with it no matter where it lands. Um, Speaking of the show, we got a lot of spoilers to talk about. A few more. um, Again, all coming from Fellowship of Fans. Tip of the hat to those folks, um, you know, pumping out the great leaks. And giving us some material to talk about. Um, the first one we want to talk about. If you're ready to jump right in, I'm just like up both feet and wrists in already. Jen, you ready to go? Ready to rumble? I'm so right. ready. Let's do it. So this first tweet here says exclusive. Emma Horvath is playing Karini, Isildur's sister, which is an Amazon original character in the upcoming show. Now, just sidebar before we move on to the next part of that tweet. I don't know if it's Karini or Karine or Kareen. It's C-A-R-I-N-E. So no pronunciation um, specifics were given in the tweet. Next portion, Isildur will voluntarily join the Numenor army, setting sail for Middle-earth. Isildur has three friends, Nolian, Valandil, Antamo, being played by, in no particular order, Anthony Crum, Alex Tarrant, and one other. All three of Isildur's friends volunteer to join the army with him, and this scene is known as the I Will Serve scene. Isildur's sister, Kareen, doesn't want Isildur joining the army. There is said to be one emotional scene where she chases Isildur through the Nor- Numenorean crowd yelling, is, is, Isildur! <laughs> According to sources, the way Kareen says Isildur closely resembles how Elrond yells Isildur in the uh, Fellowship of the Ring prologue. Um, although it's unclear whether this was intentional or just an interesting similarity or coincidence. Last piece of this tweet, scene description, quote, the scene in the streets is a big parade. The cavalry army marches through the town led by the city guards. People are singing and shouting and throwing flowers at the soldiers. Isildur is dressed in the cavalry armor. All right, so a lot here. Let's dial it back to the beginning, the first part. Emma Horvath is playing Kareen, Isildur's sister. Now, Jen... I think there's something odd about this. Can you tell me what that is? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of odd things about this, like sort of manufactured out of out of nothing. Uh, I don't. I also am like, what role is she going to play? Like, how is she going to feature? Well, before we get it, even get into the role, we should point out there is no sister of Azildur in the text. It, exactly, Manu- manufactured. Yeah, right. That's what I'm. What yeah, I yeah, mean. completely made up by by the show, which you know. We don't know, uh, there's no place in the appendices that I'm aware of um, where the, all the kings of, so there, there's a, a lineage of the kings of Gondor and Arnor, okay, that is there, but we don't necessarily get all the detail about all their brothers and sisters. So we know that Elendil had Isildur and Anarion, okay, so those two brothers, we know about them, and they are the co-kings of the kingdom, so it would make sense that they would show up in this lineage of kings. Um, no sister is mentioned. So the question is, is the omission of a sister um, conclusive that of the fact that there is no sister? So Isildur and Anarion are the only children of Elendil. And there's no mention of her in any part of the Silmarillion either. Okay. Um, so is the omission of any reference of a sister conclusive? Does it conclusively state that um, there is no sister? Or is it just like, you know, these are sketches, um, this lineage of kings, it's only going to talk about the kings, so the you know, maybe there are other siblings that are just not being referenced um, because they weren't relevant to uh, the descent of the kingship. Okay, you could go that way as well. So um, I'm kind of of the mind, well, w- she doesn't exist in Tolkien's Legendarium. 
um, because he didn't create her. But, you know, arguably there's room for her to have existed. And what we have doesn't necessarily prohibit her from existing. So, uh, you know, she doesn't exist. It's a total fabrication of out of whole cloth. How angry you get about that, I guess, is up to you. Some people are going to get really angry. Some people are going to be a little more open about it, which I am trying to be. Um, but it is interesting. And so now I think that the more interesting conversation is what you were trying to get into, which is what's her role going to be? You know, w- what function is she going to play in the plot? Right. I think that what we've seen from the showrunners thus far is that anytime there's an opportunity to create a female character, they've added a lot of female characters. Um, and this is something that I think could be a positive, um, but unless it's not very well done, you know, if they're just kind of thrown in for the sake of, look, there's a lot of women in this series that I think there's potential for this to go sideways, but, uh, I'll be interested to see if she's just sort of a blip on the radar, but adding a whole new character and Isildur is such an important character that um his sister that that really intrigues me and I I'm also yeah at a total loss for what function she's gonna serve in the plot other than maybe trying to be a foil maybe perhaps she's a foil to Isildur and that he's sort of in his youth um a little more a little more reckless and impulsive maybe yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm thinking. Um, so to your point, if they do it badly, it could be bad to add these female characters. And I think that's, you know, that sort of undergirds any evaluation of any change they make, right? If if they execute it well in terms of, you know, blocking and and uh, characterization and the scripts and all, if all that is done well, then the changes are going to come off great. People are going to shut up real fast if like the plot, I mean, not everyone, some people are just going to be dead set against any changes and you know, I guess that's okay. That's a perspective you want to take. Fine. Um, but for like 90% of viewers, if the plot is really compelling and the characters are really compelling, people are going to be a little less concerned about, well, how well does it adhere to the lore exactly? Adding female characters just to add female characters to the extent that would offend some people, which it shouldn't, but um, it will be less offensive to the, even those folks if the show is just really well done. So that underlies everything we talk about here. Um, but in terms of her role, so one thing I, I want to point out is I don't think we have confirmed or heard that it's been confirmed from anybody that Isildur's brother, Anarion, is a character. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he was one of the um, character posters that we got when all those were released. We speculated that one would be. Um, th- there was a character who was holding a sword and he had a breastplate and there were suns emblazoned all over it. And so we thought maybe that's Anarion because... Mm-hmm. You know, Anarion, Isildur is the moon, Anarion is the sun, you know, uh, Minas Anor, Minas Ithil, we're talking about, you know, Tower of the Sun, t- Tower of the of the Moon. And so, okay, there's suns emblazoned everywhere, this could be Anarion. But we found out later that that particular poster we were talking about was Elendil, uh, or Elendil. So, I don't think he was any of the posters, and I don't think it's been confirmed, like, who's playing him, or that he's even a character. Now, if... Anarion is left out. I can't imagine he would actually be left out. I think maybe this is just a leak that we haven't gotten yet, or it's just information we haven't gotten yet, because he would be a major, major, major character to to pluck out, and I'd be kind of pissed because, you know, you have the whole kingdom of Gondor and Arnor. I mean, he he is one half of the kingship after um, Sauron is killed and Elendil dies. Um, there's all these buildings that are named after him, 
And frankly, I think it would be prohibited from uh, by the Tolkien estate and Christopher Tolkien. And we'll talk about this on a future episode, but there are some leaks that Fellowship put out about requirements that Christopher Tolkien made, some demands in terms of like, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I think that taking out a character like Anarion would run afoul of the restrictions that Christopher Tolkien placed on the show. So I, I think he's got to be in there, but we haven't heard anything about him. And so one of my fears is, well, are they replacing Anarion with mm-hmm. Kareen, like just doing a gender swap? Um, which, uh, you know, I wouldn't be up in arms about that exactly. But, you know, because this is a patriarchal society, it's a fictional society, but there is a patriarchy there. Just swapping them out, you know, doing a gender swap wouldn't be so simple as that. Like it, it would have ripple effects throughout the plot um, that they would have to contend with. Uh, which they could do mm-hmm. well, um, but they would just really, really have to pay attention to that and make sure it all made sense and that they were exploring all the different threads and ramifications that that gender swap would, would have within the universe. But, you know, I would miss having Anarion, that brotherhood, the relationship. We know a little bit about it from from the lore. So I would miss if they cut him altogether. And I would rather that they have added a character than just swapped swapped one out. Um, and I, I think you're right that Kareen or Karini, however you pronounce it, could be, you know, I'm envisioning, you know, based on what we heard here about her running after him, you know, and yelling his name when he's going off to war, that they are very, very close. That's what I'm imagining. They're, they're mm-hmm. um, childhood friends. They um, have a closeness. I don't know whether it's an older or younger sister, um, but they're they extremely close and that she is maybe like a counselor to him. I, we've gotten the sense that he's supposed to be sort of young and brash and he wants to go on adventures um, we've gotten a little bit of hints that that's kind of how his character will be portrayed early in the season. And so a good foil, that's a perfect word that you used, a good foil for that type of characterization would be the loving um, sibling that's trying to sort of rein him in, the the uh, voice of reason, the voice of wisdom and restraint. And so ultimately his brashness causes him to join up in the army and he's going off to war and she's distraught about that, which could be like I the, love the, the, the version of that scene. Yeah. yeah. I love the Isildur, like I can hear it. And of course, I absolutely think that's, you know, a callback to the Fellowship of the Ring scene. How could it not be? And we see a couple of those just in this tweet in that the scene in the streets is a big parade as the cavalry army marches through the town. People are singing and throwing flowers at the soldiers. You know, what does that remind us of? Of course, the scene, you know, from the original Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings when Faramir is going into battle. Although it's a very different tone between those songs because it's more mournful. He's going off to battle like Denethor is right. sending him off to on basically a suicide mission. Sure, different timbre, but but still, you know, similar. And also, speaking of, you know, similarities, the Sildor having these three front friends. Yeah, yep. We love the, we love the trio of three friends: Noli on Volandil and Antamo. 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 O n t a m o. I mean, these are all made up names, so Antamo. I have no idea. I'm sure that there is like, I mean, there is a pronunciation <laughs> guidebook. I mean, there are all kinds of uh, Tolkien uh, guidebooks on Tolkien languages, <laughs> so I'm sure there is a correct way to pronounce it. But um, considering that the show made it up, who knows how it's how it's pronounced? It's just there's so many characters that get. So many characters and names are coming yeah. out that I'm, uh, <laughs> it's sort of blowing my mind how many people 
will be in this show. Right. <laughs> How many characters? So I um it's a I lot. did a little bit of you know nerding out about the names and trying to see if we could learn anything from about the characters from the names. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a little bit about Kareen, um, but these three friends. I'll start with them. So Nolian and Antamo, I couldn't find anything, not quickly, not, you know, uh, no low-hanging fruit about those names. And there might be, if we really dug deep into, you know, Quenya names, maybe there's some root words for like Noel and um, ONT. Maybe those are some, have some meanings that we could try and stitch those together. I didn't go that far. Valandil, though, um, is the name of Isildur's son. Uh, we know from the Lord that he has a son mm. named Valandil. And he actually has like four or five sons. And Valandil becomes the king after Isildur dies. The other sons had died in the Battle of the Gladden Fields. So Valandil ends up um, becoming the king once Isildur dies. So, all right. So we know that Isildur named his son Valandil, apparently, probably after this friend, you know, one of this trio of friends, the three musketeers or four musketeers. And so I think that we can expect not only that these friends are extremely, extremely close, but that they will remain close throughout the series and that mm-hmm. at least Valandil, but potentially the others, but for, for sure Valandil is going to die and probably an important death. Like I would wonder if it will Valandil save Isildur's life in some fashion in battle. You know, they're all going off to battle together. Is Valandil going to die on this mission? Um, and so Isildur names his son after him to honor him. Um, that's, I think, the most likely scenario. Definitely. Very, very Tolkien-y. So we're already predicting deaths. Already predicting deaths on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kareen, Kareen, I, I sort of reached out on on Twitter. I asked for some help, you know, uh, f- see if any Tolkien um, language experts could chime in. And, you know, because I, I have a little bit of a concern about the showrunners really doing a good job with the languages. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not a word nerd. I'm not a language hound. So... My ability to suss out a failure to do a good job with respect to the languages is is not that great. So um, they could do great or do crappy, and I might not be able to tell, but I really want them to do great. And I feel like I have a good just kind of instinctive barometer for what sounds right just based on having read it enough times. You know, is it to sound like a Quenya word? Does it sound like a Sindarin word? And Kareen, Karini does not sound like Quenya to me. Um it sounds very modern. Very modern. I am not. It feels anachronistic. It. Very too too modern. Yeah, it's me. like you know if they name the character Sally or something, <laughs> you know it, it feels it's a bit yeah. of an anachronism because it feels like a modern name, and I think it has like French roots. I think it's a French name, although you know people in America um, use it. I mean, because American names are a mishmash of, of all kinds of different other cultures. So, but Karine or Karini, it sounds like a modern French name, not a Quenya name. Um, I don't think like a Cinder name, and I certainly don't think like an uh, uh, Adonaic, Adonaic name, Adonaic being the, sort of the Manish language that the Numenorians spoke, which was uh, evolved from the Manish languages that they spoke before even they encountered the Eldar. But so it was a version of that sort of ancient, ancient Manish language that sort of evolved, and they continued to use it. But the, the Numenorians throughout the years generally tended to use Quenya, you know, they became close with the elves, they became elf friends, and the, the elves from Valinor would come over and give them gifts and teach them. And so for generations and generations, the people of Numenor spoke Quenya, or much of them, especially those uh, in the line of kings or the, of the royal line. 
which Karini would be. Isildur is related, and, and Elendil is related to um, the High King. So they're of that royal bloodline, and they would speak Quenya, and they would have Quenya, Quenya names. Now, at the time when Isildur was around, there's also this fractioning. We talked about this on an early episode where we summarized the time period where the many of the kings um, had pulled away. They said, we don't like elves anymore. We hate you because you live forever, and we wish we could live forever too, so we're really bitter, and um, so we're no longer your friends, and we don't want to, you know, I think one king, I forget off the top of my head which king it was, but one of them uh, prohibited speaking Quenya or any sort of elvish tongue in Numenor, um, and the king started taking the Adonaic names again. So our Pharaoh's is not a Quenya name. It's not a Cinder name. It is an Adonaic name. And for, you know, many generations, a lot of the Kings had, had used that Adonaic name. Um, but the faithful continued to use Quenya names. So Isildur is, has Quenyan origins and his sister, therefore should, I would think also have a Quenyan origin name as well. Corrine or Corrine just doesn't, it doesn't sound Quenyan to me. No, um, not at all. And, and that's, you know, important piece of history. Now, I, I had one response on Twitter who pointed me to an Elvish dictionary that said the, the Kareen, or a variant of C-A-R-I, or C-A-R, that root, it's a Quenyan root that can mean maker or builder. So Kareen could, I guess, in theory, and I don't, I don't know all the rules of the Quenyan language, so somebody please email me if I'm getting this wrong. But I'm finding a Quenyan root, C-A-R, that could mean maker or builder. Um, so maybe this is derived from the Quenyan language and means that she's, I don't know, a maker of some kind. Uh, Tolkien professor chimed in and said, I think this is a shortening of her full name, that she has a full Quenyan name, and this would be like a, a shortened name that is like a nickname Isildur would give her or the, their mother or father would give them. So maybe Kareen is just a shortening of a longer Quenyan word. And so if we combine these two kind of different concepts, maybe the C-A-R prefix, maker or builder, it's part of a longer Quenyan word, and there's other Quenyan parts of it. So, like, maker of something. So, maybe we'll get a longer name that has some meaning in, you know, maker or builder of something. And what that is, I, I don't know. Um, that's kind of kind of a guess. So, if we're trying to figure out, is there a Quenyan origin to it? That's the best that I got. <laughs> and it could be totally off base, but you know, I'm trying to, you know, put some pieces together. And um, if we get a longer name, maybe that'll tell us something about what her character will be or do or her role in the in the show. Yeah, and speaking of names, we can probably jump to the next session because it's directly relevant. Um, Farazone's original son, Kemen, which means Earth in Quenya, and Elendil's daughter, this Kareen, will be in a romantic relationship in the first season. So this son, Kemen, again, Earth in Quenya, these names, the reason we're spending so much time talking about names is they're always, they're always so relevant. You know, they always have, have, um, reveal something about the character. So already we can imagine who Kemen, what Kemen will be like, who he will be. Right. Tolkien said that, um, you know, give me a name and then I'll give you a story. Not the other way around. You know, he, he wouldn't create the names to serve the story. He would think of names and the story would flow from that. And that's, you know, that's just the mind of a right. philologist for you. The name itself. I mean, he's kind of like Treebeard, it, you know, yeah. every name for something. Yes. A hill is not the name. It's, you know, Treebeard Entish would be like, you know, the thing that I stand up on in the morning and let the sun go through my, uh, on my skin and the wind through my hair, you know, it, 
the name for th- something is the story of its existence. So that was Tolkien's attitude about names. So, uh, yeah, it's always good yeah, to look at names. Very foundational. Very foundational to his writing. Um, but this little this little tidbit I thought was interesting um, because they're adding. Uh, here we go. Another romance, another romantic relationship. In the first, I think this season. is just going to be a rom com. This I mean, isn't going to be a, a drama or anything. It's just going to be a rom com. We got all these romances. You know, we're going to have a, a nice meet cute. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So then I'll just go through the next couple tweets. Um, during a banquet scene in the throne room, Kareen and Kemen are dining together at a table for two. So we see them together. Um, Here's there's a scene in the throne room during a banquet type event where lots of people are complaining about the elves. They don't want to offer them any help. I think we mentioned this last time, the scene from Numenor. Um, Farazone wants an opinion from a non-politician and he insists on hearing Corrine's views about it. Um, also, when Farazone asks Corrine to speak immediately before that, he tells his son to sit down and be quiet because they already know what his son thinks about it. I got a kick out of this. Yeah, me too. I, I just think it's really So there's funny. a lot, I think, to talk about here. So going back to the the name stuff, um, it's, it is interesting that Kemen is his... So, okay, before we even get there, Arpharazone has a son? <laughs> Since when? You know, it's not in the lore. Yeah, Arpharazone does not have a son in the lore, <laughs> at least not one that we are, are aware of. Um, none is mentioned. I think it's, you know, he married Muriel by force, uh, you know... I think that they would mention whether or not he had any sons. Um, you know, mm-hmm. like we talked about before with Karini, the omission of a son or daughter, a reference of a of a child does not necessarily conclusively mean that he didn't have a, a child. But I think in the case of Arfarazone, because he was so central to what was going on in the downfall of Numenor, I think I think his uh, the existence of a child would have been mentioned. So I this is a creation uh, by Amazon and one that is, I think, you know, wrong. But I can live with it. You know, I can live with it. Um, the other thing that's interesting here is the fact that his name is a Quenya name. So in the lore, we know that by the time Arpharazone is becoming king, Numenor is firmly in the time period when there's no Quenya. You know, don't speak Elvish on the island. Um, nobody is going to be named Elvish names except for the faithful. Um, so the faithful are, are rebels. Now we know that the show is doing some time compression stuff. So I, I think that they're, I think that at the start of the show, when Air Farazone is alive, even um, we're we're gonna see a Numenor that's a little more um, solicitous of the elves. the The relationship hasn't broken down completely yet. Maybe there's some tensions, but we're gonna see the the before, not the after. You know, so even though technically in the timeline with Air Farazone around by this point, the the relationship should have soured and broken down already. That should have already happened um, because they're compressing the timeline. I think we're gonna see. The relationship being good, Arfarazon pretending to be cool with the elves, and he's going to name his child a Quenya name. Um, and it's going to be over the course of the season and over the course of the life of Arfarazon that we're going to see the decline of Numenor from friendly with the elves to we hate elves. So that's what I get from this, the fact that Arfarazon's son has a Quenya name, which would never happen in the book. So I, I, I think you combine that with time compression, we're learning a little bit more about where the show is going to start and and the timeline we're going to be looking at, probably the life of Arfarazone is going to be the, the, the duration of this show. Yeah, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a rapid descent into, we're going to come to the conclusion that 
these two groups are at odds, or at least the Numenorians do not like the elves. I think there'll be whispers, and Farazone is masking it, but the audience may know his true motivations and from early on. And I think we're getting a little bit of a Romeo and Juliet vibe here. Um, yeah. Our for own sure. son and Elendil's daughter having a romance. Um, you know, Elendil, who, whose father is the leader of the faithful in the books. I think I'm guessing they'll probably excise the father from, from the show. And it'll probably just be Elendil will be the leader of the faithful in the show. So leader of the faithful mm-hmm. versus leader of the, uh, um, the King's men. Um, Mm-hmm. And even though our first zone is not the king yet. And so I, I think that the phrase the king's men comes up after our first zone becomes king. I have to double check that. But anyway, the faithful and the faithless, let's just say that. Um, two heads of these opposing factions, they have children that are dating. And I guess at this point, it's not uh, Capulets and Montagues yet because Kareen is at the table with Farazone and Kemen. Like, right. you know, our first zone is allowing her, not only allowing her to be at the table, but actually, you know, asking for her advice and telling his son to shut up. So I think we get uh, an inkling that there's, uh, not an inkling, but there's clearly a lot of tension here between father and son. So that will be a subplot. Um, I, maybe we'll have a conflicted son who desperately wants his father's approval, who but loves Kareen, who's of the faithful. So Kemen's torn between being of the faithful and earning his father's approval. So maybe that'll cause him to do something horrible. He'll betray Kareen. You know, I could see that becoming kind of a central emotional plot line of the show. Or perhaps he will not betray her, which is right, equally dramatic. Right, right, right. Other way around. Um, I mean, this is this is heavy drama. It's like, uh, I don't know. We just hope it doesn't border on melodrama, right? But I think it's interesting that they've added this romantic relationship. It's certainly like a recipe that's effective, mm-hmm. right? Tale as old as right. time. Romeo and Juliet. Right. Give the people what they want. <laughs> We people like romances, so it's just all about the execution. Interesting here that this is during a banquet type event where lots of people are complaining about the elves. Okay, so it's in the throne room. So I, I don't know whether Farazone is supposed to be king yet. Um, we don't. There's no inclination. There's no context from this tweet when during the timeline mm, this is. He's yeah, but he's cut. He's he's. I would assume he is because he's sort of co- directing the conversation. Right. Right. He's, it's, it appears that he's in a position of power. But it's it's also before Numenor has sent military aid to the elves. I'm assuming in Middle-earth is what we're talking about, which uh, we'll learn a little bit later. And I think we talked about this last week that, you know, Muriel, I believe, was still the queen at the time um, some ships, you know, a faction of the Numenorian military was sent to Middle-earth to aid the elves there. So I guess that that's the question. Was Muriel still the queen? when Numenor sent ships to Middle-earth and sent military aid or not. Um, because if she was, then Farazon would not be the king at this particular moment. He would be Muriel's, you know, but, boyfriend or suitor or, you know, a, obviously a high-ranking person in the, uh, because he's a, of royal lineage anyway. So he would have every reason to be in the throne room and be a part of this conversation. So he could just be like a very dominant personality. Um, that's what I'm imagining. Yeah. Either way that he is very, he's kind of a bulldog. Right. Right. Of a character. Right. So. But so, we're, yeah, we're starting to see, at least in this scene, the the fractured relationship between the people of Numenor and the elves. Um, you know, a lot of people not wanting to send aid. So I'm reminded of uh, a scene from uh, the Silmarillion, the portion of the Silmarillion that talks about the, this is the published Silmarillion, 
that talks about uh, Numenor and the downfall of Numenor. And there's a scene, it's way before Erfar Zone. It's an earlier king, but since we're talk- there's a lot of time compression here, I think we have to look at earlier scenes and see whether or not they're fitting them in. This is kind of the er- one of the earliest scenes where um, the relationship first sours. The kings of Numenor express to the elves from Valinor that they want longer life. And um, the elves say, you know, this is not a, a wise desire. Um, if you were to come to Valinor, you know, we're not withholding eternal life from you. It is not a function of the land we live in. Um, you know, it is the, the undying lands because the undying live there. Um, it's not the lands itself that makes the people there undying. And, and so then th- so that's kind of a significant uh, moment in the throne room and the king does not take their advice and, and their relationship becomes kind of sundered at that point. Um, I guess there's no indication that the elf, any elves are present during this banquet that we're talking about in the tweet. So maybe they're not pulling in from that scene in the, in the Silmarillion. I don't know. Um, but I, you know, it's always fun to think about the, those old scenes and see if they're pulling pieces of it and trying to incorporate them into what we get in the show. Absolutely. Thematically, absolutely. They're incorporating it. I mean, that, that theme you see over and over again of like pursuing, you know, eternal life or pursuing the thing that is not granted to you, um, to your detriment. Yeah, that's absolutely throughout the whole series. Right. So let's let's go on to the next one, don't you think? This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and, of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out 4Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. Um, next tweet. Quote, Galadriel, Queen Muriel, Elendil, Isildur, alongside his three friends, Noli and Valendil and Antamo. Antamo? Yeah, Antamo. Will be on a massive boat sailing to Middle-earth. Halbrand is also most likely on this boat as well due to later events in the season, but not directly reported. So that's sort of like an editorialization from Fellowship of Fans. The second part of the tweet is, Farazon will say goodbye to Galadriel and Muriel at the docks. Galadriel leaves the docks on a small boat with just a few guards, but th- this was to be rowed out to the ship. So this is kind of what, uh, I was talking about this already. Muriel goes to Middle-earth with a contingent of Numenorean forces to aid the elves. Presumably, you know, this is what Galadriel was asking for, um, demanding that the Numenorians jump into the fight. Uh, we talked about the contentiousness of those conversations, you know, her demands on the Numenorians uh, in our last spoiler episode. So I guess her overtures were successful, at least with respect to Muriel. And Muriel decides to go, leaving Farazon. I guess to to rule Numenor, and so is this the moment where Farazon's machinations kind of uh, come to fruition? He's gotten Muriel off the island. Now he has the island to himself, and he can solidify his his power. That's kind of what I'm guessing will be the political significance of of this move and of Muriel deciding to go with the army. Yeah, we talked about this a lot last time. If that was, you know, the way that it was gonna play out and it is kind of the perfect setup for Farazon to remove his mask and reveal that, you know, he's actually really power hungry and he's going to take over. <laughs> um, 
But I think Galadriel on a small boat with just a few guards, this is what we've seen. Somehow this goes awry. This is what we saw, I think, in the trailer, right? Where she's like stuck out on a little tiny ship in a storm. Do we think that somehow she, this is the time where she gets separated from the boat and ends up with just on this small boat? I don't think so. I think that, um, so in that scene, in the little teaser, yeah, she's stuck out on a boat and you know, there's, there's a shot of her, you know, just wet and bedraggled. And someone's coming in and you can see a hand, you know, pulling the hair back and exposing her elven ears. Uh, What we Mm -hmm. heard from Fellowship is that that moment is when the Numenorians discover Gladril. They find her sailing out in the ocean adrift and they, you know, that was was earlier. That's before she gets to Numenor, not after. This is later. This is later. You know, I think at this point she's, it looks like she'd be sailing with the Numenorian fleet to go back to Middle Earth. Back. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and they're all going together. So uh, we also learned last time that it was Elendil. It was either Elendil or Isildur. I'll have to remind myself. But it was, you know, for narrative purposes, let's just lump them together. <laughs> One of those two, they're the ones who save Galadriel and um, and Halbrand, and they form a relationship from the time they pick her up in the middle of the ocean to when they get back to Numenor. So there's some trust that develops. It sounds like a bit of a positive relationship, and. After Galadriel's overtures and demands for aid are effective, and now they're headed back, they're again sailing together, with, which I think solidifies the notion that there is immediate kinship between Galadriel and Elendil and the other faithful. Um, so I, we're not going to get, I don't think we're going to see, like there's a lot of ways to play alliances, right? They could have done it where Galadriel and Elendil don't see eye to eye and they kind of clash and they're kind of reluctant allies or there's an arc where they don't at first get along. And then over time, they Galadriel learns she can trust Elendil or vice versa. Right. They could have done a lot of fun things with those characters. Um, you know, put us on a journey before they actually come together as true allies. But it looks like they're not doing that. And they're kind of saying these, you know, Galadriel and the faithful are right away seeing eye to eye right away. They're on the same page you know, the faithful save her. When they're sailing away, again, she's going with them. So I think we're going to see a strong kinship between them right away and probably throughout. A fellowship of sorts? One could say. One could say. A fe- <laughs> one could say a fellowship. A fellowship of ships? I like that the straight, you know, they all have strength of character. They're all really important. Obviously, Elendil and Isildur and Galadriel are very big players. Right. So it's exciting that we'll see them all together on screen doing good things, trying to save Middle-earth. It's all very Tolkien to me. I want to see this scene with Farazon saying goodbye to Gladriel Muriel at the docks. You know, is he going to like pretend, oh, I wish I could go with you. I got these bone spurs. You know, I'd totally be fighting. But, you know, I got some yeah. laundry. My I got to put them in the dryer. I left the stove on. I, I got to was... run back. You know, I'll see you over there. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's like waving them off with a smile. Yeah. No, don't go. Don't go. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Like, yeah. I also wonder, you know, as long as we're talking about Farazone, how manipulative is he going to be portrayed right away? You know, is he um or is there going to be some period of time where he is an honest broker, where he's genuine and then he gets and then right. he sort of turns to the dark side over time, you know, cuz he could be kind of like a just like an ambitious 
um, an ambitious but well-meaning character to start, and then that ambition gets corrupted, you know, grows and then gets corrupted and perverted, you know, perhaps by Sauron down the road. Are they going to have time to explore that though? I think you know, it's five or six be seasons, clear. and if they're starting with Farazan, I mean, that should be enough time to explore his character. But yeah, that's a good point. I yeah, I wonder. I do wonder how early we're gonna we're gonna know that he's no good. Or if we'll really see that descent. Right. It's a good point. But, um, you know, they need they need some villains early on. We've got, like, the ultimate big bad villain, but I could see him being, like, the villain of Numenor early on. Right. Because it can't all be honky-dory. Yeah, I mean, because we know we're not getting Sauron in the first season, or at least not very much of him. Um, exactly. And it sounds like Adar... Like the dark elf, the corrupted elf that leads orcs. We talked about this in a prior spoiler episode. That that's gonna be like kind of the primary antagonist in at least in Middle Earth. So I, I bet in Numenor we're not gonna have a clear antagonist right away. I think it's gonna be a little bit more subtle, more political. You know, uh, I mean, I it'll probably be pretty clear that we don't like Farazon. I would bet that, that that they don't hide the ball too much on that, but that he won't be like villainous early on you know what i mean like there's a distinction there like he'll be yeah. kind of squirrely he'll be and... a peter baelish if you yeah will. no exactly yeah i see that absolutely just not sure about you a peter baelish who can wield a sword you know which is a, a very dangerous combination but yeah peter baelish that's a very good very good reference well as long as we're talking about farazon i i think we got another tweet here that uh is kind of on point uh amazon has created a new young attache protege working under farazon the actor playing this role is yet unknown. So, uh, and, and let me skip ahead there. The actor playing Farazon's project protege is yet unknown, but due to the process of elimination, um, and this is sort of an editorialization from Fellowship of Fans, one of the only actors left that can play the role is Leanne Wadham or Fabian Fabian McCallum. Uh, and so this is all just, that's just speculation from Fellowship. But um, So we know that, Farazone is going to have some staff. You know, he's going to have an assistant, and we're going to get to meet that assistant and get to know him. So we're going to get not just the bosses, but we're going to get the underlings and their perspective. You know, he's going to be complaining about hours, and I don't get health care, and no oh, vacation time. You know, <laughs> that's why. That's why Farazone's, basically an intern. Yeah, that's why an unpaid intern. You know, just and Farazone's going to be a terrible boss. That's why. How we're going to know that <laughs> we don't like him? <laughs> uh, but no, that's interesting. They're creating another new character. And I've had some people tell me like they're turned off by all these new characters. Um, it it gets overwhelming, and then I have to stop myself and be like, "All right, well, we followed Game of Thrones. It's gonna be okay." Right. Well, and also there are a lot of characters in the Legendarium already. Of course, characters we know about. That, that's their first argument. We already have so many characters that are canon. Just stick with those characters. Right. But then if you if you look at those characters, the characters that are canon within the Legendarium, within, you know, in the Second Age period that we're talking about, you know, we're talking about kings and their spouses and other rulers that are spread out all across uh, Arda, you know. That's not enough for a show. You have to have the people that are around them, like their staff, <laughs> you know, their, their underlings. Right. Um, it can't all be the major yeah, players. Yeah, you can't only have scenes between Farazon and Galadriel and then Galadriel and Gilgalad. Like you, that, that can't be the limit of your show. You can't. So if you stick with just the canon characters, especially in the Second Age, there's not enough to fill out the, the narrative. So you have to add these, um, the people around them, the family, the friends, the employees, the employers, so that we get a sense of culture. You have culture. to build the world. Yeah, yeah. we have to, we have to yeah. fill out the world that, that Tolkien built. So 
Um, so I think having an attache is interesting. I wonder, we know nothing about this character yet in terms of Mm-mm, his nothing. alliances. Maybe he will be, you know, an eagerly evil underling who is just like eager to do all the, the dirty deeds that Farazon wants done. And like maybe Farazon for a while is still pretending to be good and even handed. Um, so he's politicking his way to the top and not revealing his malevolent in, intent or desires or plans. And it's the underling who's kind of carrying it out. He's the guy who, you know, shows up in a dark hood and, and kidnaps people and, and, uh, you know, outside their house. The yeah. He's, he's maybe. the guy who breaks thumbs, you know, maybe, maybe he's that character. Um, or maybe he's the opposite and he'll end up sabotaging. Yeah. That would know. be interesting too. You know, uh, somebody who's, we're watching him and kind of, he's conflicted and he wants to be good. He's eager, but then, Farazon's asking him to do all these things that compromise his morals and, and you know, so then he, he becomes part of the resistance. And then obviously if that's the case, then, you know, he's going to have a bad ending because clearly he's not successful at taking down Farazon. <laughs> we know that. So he'll probably, he'll be a, his will be a tragic story if that's, if that's his line, you know, if he's actually resistant to Farazon, he'll be dead. Yeah. yeah. He will, uh, he will be suspended without pay indefinitely. Dead, dead. <laughs> well, you want to continue on with this section yeah, of tweets? Yeah. Okay, so we've got an, a, a scene, a proposed scene here. It takes place in the town square, but inside one of the buildings, a tavern or inn, Farazone is meeting with that young man from the court and seemed to be conspiring about the Numenor Armada going to Middle-earth. And now I'm not sure if this is part of the same scene or a different scene, but the next part of the tweet says, There is an elf-hating mob forming in the town square. And Farazon comes out and walks amongst us, trying to calm us down. He just reminds the people of Numenor who they are and what they have accomplished. After he calms the crowd and gives a rousing speech, he walks down from the Builder's Guild steps and mingles with the crowd, shaking hands and slapping people on their backs. So here we see Farazon the politician and how amazingly effective he is at moving people. You know, I, I kind of imagine him as being a bit of a a cult leader type personality in terms of Mm -hmm. how, you know, he's going to be very charming and very compelling and he's going to seem powerful and respectable. And just the way he is able to call, you know, he walks out the building and just calms the entire crowd and not only calms them, but moves them to excitement. You know, he rouses them by giving kind of, it sounds like a, like a nationalist rant. You know, we are great. All the things that we've done, we are Numenorians. We've accomplished. Yeah. Something of note is that he doesn't talk about, you know, the elves, like, try to bridge that gap. He's just sort of puffing right. up the Numenorians. Right, so on the... Calming them down, but puffing yeah. them up, which is just so strategic. Right, and that's, the, yeah, that's kind of insidious, right? Because on the one hand, he mm-hmm. is on a, on the surface trying to, to stop the elf-hating mob, right? Because they're out there, a mob is forming because they hate the elves. So he's coming out to calm them down, talk them off the elf-hating ledge. But he's not really appealing to a sense of morality. He's not trying to make the case that elves are okay. It sounds like, and you know, we're extrapolating a lot from this tweet. We don't really know what the words in his speech are. But what he's really doing is very quickly moving on to uh, Numenor is great. You should be proud of yourselves. You know, have some honor, whatever, and and building them up and puffing them up and getting them excited. Which is that is like a. That's a dangerous That's personality. That's a classic tactic. Yeah, I mean, 
and, and we, we've seen that play out. That's history. fascist dictator skills, right? That's like, you know, yes, Hitler-esque yes, in terms of absolutely. Hitler was an, an incredible public speaker, right? He was able to move people to, yes. to doing horrible deeds because they found him irresistible. Um, and Farazone, it seems like they're setting him up to be that potentially that kind of character. It's going to be something to to witness. This actor better deliver. There's a lot on him. That's yeah. All, all I heard somewhere that, that he was considered to be the best actor on set for his scenes, that he was okay. just like a, well, a powerful reassuring. actor. Yeah, yeah. I think that also came from Fellowship, um, that he was just kind of knocking it out of the park. So, you know, that answers your concerns, right? He better be good. It sounds like he's pretty good. Or maybe that's just setting up uh, huge expectations and <laughs> when he's mediocre, now we're just going to be mad. <laughs> so the next tweet, Elendil, Lloyd Owen, will be the head of the Numenorian fleet and will be leading the recruitment of new soldiers, which will set sail to Middle Earth. So this is interesting. I mean, clearly, it's the faithful that are going to help the elves in Middle Earth. And this rings true to me. This seems right, because we know that the faithful um, were maintaining good relations with the elves of Middle Earth. They had their own havens uh, more in the north of Middle Earth that they would frequent, you know, in Linden, and so they would see um, they would see the elves there and, and correspond with Gilgalad. And, and they had kingdoms. I mean, they weren't referred to as kingdoms, but they were kind of like, you know, little cities and ports that they would that they would man um, that were really just where the, the faithful would go hang out, which is interesting in and of itself that, uh, you know, a, a sub-faction of the Numenorians that was actually being persecuted would be able to maintain, um, you know, ports and harbors and cities of their own unmolested by the king's men, you know, the dark Numenorians, the, the, basically the majority in Numenor, you know, so if they're being persecuted, how are they not losing those cities or getting them taken over? That's, that's actually kind of interesting. I just thought of that, but um, anyway, that's kind of a a tangent and digression. Taking it back to the tweet. um, It makes sense that, you know, from the lore, we know that they were maintaining relationships with, with with the elves. It would make sense that the faithful would be the ones who would be most willing to go and aid the elves, like to listen to the counsel of an elf, Galadriel, when she comes and says, Hey, there's, a darkness rising, it'll come for you eventually, you need to fight it, and so the faithful go go and help out. That kind of makes sense to me. That makes sense, and it leaves, you know, a void back on the island of Numenor where the folks who stayed behind are going to be more ideologically susceptible to bad influences. That's a good point, yeah. You know, because all the faithful are going off to help the elves in Middle-earth, that leaves the remaining population that stayed behind kind of like by definition, they're the ones who are uh, less sympathetic to the elves and would be more sympathetic to or more vulnerable to Farazon's manipulations. So that's, that's a good point. Dangerous sort of powder keg. That's, that's brewing over there in Numenor. Yep, but yep. I wonder if this is, so, you know, we get this Numenorian fleet that heads over, um, what battle is this? Because in terms of the timeline, that should not be happening. I, I don't think there's... Well, maybe there isn't. Maybe it doesn't come to blows quite. Well, we know that there... Maybe it's not like a full-on, like, huge war. Um, yeah. But we know that there are at least skirmishes. There are battle scenes um, that have been filmed. We know that. So I wonder if, you know, as part of the time compression, you know, we know that the the first war between the elves of Eregion and Sauron, you know, Sar- when Sauron is finally revealed and Celebrimbor and the other wise elves take off the, the three elven rings of power. And so Sauron's like, oh, 
you're not going to share the rings with me. I hate you now, and I'm going to come kill you. And so, like, he brings his forces, and there's a huge battle between Sauron and the elves of Eregion, where Sauron basically sacks Eregion, kills Celebrimbor. Um, so the only reason that Sauron isn't able to completely take over Middle-earth at that point, in that battle, in the middle of the Second Age, mind you, this is like, you know, 1,000 or 1,500 years before Isildur and Elendil are even on the map, um, the reason he's not able to take over Middle-earth at that point is because um, the Numenorians come and save the day. They come in at just the right time, and they kind of sweep Sauron away, and they have to retreat. And it's due to his defeat in that battle that Sauron always hid and feared the Numenorians. And he knew that if he was truly going to be the ruler of Middle-earth, he needed to take care of the Numenorians somehow. So we're obviously, if we are starting with uh, during the time period when Farazon and Isildur are alive, at the end of the Third Age... Um, Chronologically, we would we wouldn't see that battle. But if they're doing time compression, you know, I wonder if they're gonna are they are they gonna smash the forging of the rings and the the war between the elves and Sauron and Eregion? Is that all gonna happen in, in the first season or two? And if so, is this contingent of Numenorean this all these Numenorean ships that are going over that are being led by the faithful? Is that is it that fleet that saves the day? In which case, it sets up a very direct hatred between Sauron and not just the Numenorians, but the Faithful in particular and Elendil in particular early on in this series. Um, so that would be interesting if that's the road they're taking. And that's the only one that kind of comes to mind if, when I'm trying to put my finger on what this battle is that, that has been filmed, you know, what it is that these, this Numenorian fleet is going to be doing over Middle-earth. Um, that's my best guess. That would certainly pack punch i mean this first season's gonna be packed if that's the case just a lot of action hopefully not but and i had i I, yeah i had thought it was sort of going to be more character building well nothing builds a character better than action scenes with no dialogue am i right am i right (laughs) that's my fear (laughs) but oh but we'll see i mean that would make sense time-wise I I suppose that makes sense because they want to sort of see the culmination of all these efforts, bef- you know, presumably wrap things up a little bit before you get to season two. Right. But- all right, Jen. Well, I think let's wrap it up there. We got a lot more to talk about next week. Um, a few great spoilers and some recent developments in the fandom that uh, we've really got to talk about. Um, so let's save that for next week. Uh, in the meantime, Everyone, please like, subscribe, rate us, share us with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. And go check out Watch Party Wheel of Time when you get a chance. And if you'd like to interact with us, please find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at at LOTR Party. You can email us at watchpartylotr at gmail.com or on Facebook. Uh, We'd love to hear from you, get your comments, questions. um, And if you send us a message, we may read it on the air if that's something you want us to do. And come back next time. We'll have more spoilers for you. Uh, So until then, may the wind under your hairy toes uh, (laughs) send you where the moon toe walks. Did I just mix those up? (laughs) Does that sound right? Does that sound right? That was beautiful. Beautifully put, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm having a stroke right now. Okay. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. So for this Grey Havens, I've actually got a little bit of space trivia. 
scientists using the Hubble Space Telescope recently discovered an ancient, ancient star, actually the most distant single star they've ever seen, and they have named it Arendelle. Now, for those of you who are listening, you probably are familiar with the story of Arendelle, but if not, I'll just give you a, a quick summary. Arendelle was uh, in the first age, uh, Arendelle and his wife, Elwing, flying on Arendelle's, and I mean, you know, they he sailed uh, in his ship, Vingalot, wearing a Silmaril on his brow. Now, this is you know, at the end of the first age, and he sailed to Valinor to ask for uh, the Valar's aid in the battle against Morgoth. And it was because he took this trip that um, it really turned the tide of the war. The Valar answered the call, um, and the Valar and uh, the elves of Amon came over and, and helped win the battle. And Arendil was technically breaking the ban of the Noldor. Um, the Doom of Mandos forbade the Noldor from returning. Arendil was of Noldor descent. And uh, so... Although he was a hero, he was also forbidden from returning to Middle-earth, and his sort of penalty, as it were, was to sail the skies in his ship, Fingalot, and to you know guard the gates of heaven, basically, you might say, uh, guarding the walls of Arda. And he's, he's on an endless journey through the starless voids and still wearing the Silmaril on his brow. And so the idea being now that the star in the sky, the brightest star, is Arendil flying in his ship, guarding us from the void, um, wearing the Silmaril on his brow. So that's kind of that mythology. And it's, it's a beautiful story. One of, you know, Arendil's probably one of, if not my very favorite character in the Legendarium. He is the greatest hero. And so it's really wonderful that now NASA scientists have named the star after him. And it was fun to read the articles about this because it turns out there are a lot of NASA scientists and the people that work on the Hubble telescope, a lot of Tolkien fans. And so they were geeking out as much as I am now um, learning that they did this. So, uh, and it's really, really an appropriate name because this particular star, well, the name Arendelle means, you know, morning star or star of the dawn. That's sort of the, the old English meaning of it, which of course is all wrapped up in in Tolkien's legendarium, you know, the mythology that he created of his character, Arendelle, is very much tied into that that old English meaning. Uh, and this particular star, because it's one of the oldest stars, they they think it is uh, one of the oldest stars, so think of it as being, you know, from the dawn of time, the dawn of stars forming. It, it is the farthest they've ever seen, and it's not, they don't think it is one of the very first stars, like the first generation of stars, but it is like maybe a generation after that. So the article that I'm looking at says, they think it's maybe a subsequent generation, so maybe a couple tens of millions of years after star formation began in the universe. Now, tens of millions you might think is a long time, but in the you know considering the whole age of the universe, this star is supposed to be 12.9 billion light years away from Earth, and uh, so tens of millions of years is not that long a time when you're talking about the age of stars. So this is one of the first generations of stars here, dawn of time, at Arendelle. It's very aptly named, so it's a beautiful connection. So if you've ever looked up at the night sky and wanted to say to yourself that you were looking at the light of Arendelle, our most beloved star, now you can. Thank you.